0: Gratitude, Brother Hope. Thank you for those kind words. Uh, I'd like to first of all thank God for allowing me to be here. Uh, I want to give a special thanks to Mara and Andy for opening up their home for me and my brother. Great appreciate it. Um, I said, I remember it was home there. I know a bit. Yeah, today I'm going to talk about the coming of the Lord. The only issue with being the second to last for the last speaker is that the previous speakers tend to tread on your lesson. But it's even more worse when your lesson is becoming the Lord and almost everything is based on, it come on the board. But even though the substance and the subject may be similar, I believe my approach and detail is different. So I want to start off with how I came on my journey to advocating the covenant as talent, Hope, he came to my house one day and uh, I had already been baptized into Christ. Actually, Hope was to into Christ and on the instrument that I used. And while Hope is there, he tells me to sit down and he says he has some overwhelming stuff that he wants to share with me, but well, he wants me to have an open mind. I said, okay, I'm going to lay it on him. So he goes to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus says, Thank not that i come to destroy the law and the prophets, but i come to fulfill. Not one job or one tip shall I will pass law so to all. Okay. He asked me, well, are you going to do law? I said, no, I'm not going to law. And he said, you have your husband passed away, right? And I said, no, oh, you're going to have to give me something better than that. So. He goes back to chapter 16, chapter 27 through 28, in which it says, For a son of man will come in the glory of the Father, to the glory um, of the, the Father, and his angels, to the word of the man according to his words. And he said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, there be some standing here that shall not taste of death until they see the son of man come in his kingdom. So I stopped. And I said, Wait, say the last part again. Yeah, you read it again? Where it said that some standing here will not die until they see the Son of Man coming to his kingdom. So I picked up, I had a new international version and a new King James Version, hand. I looked at it, verse 28, you know the Bibles. They said the same thing. And the conclusion was that Jesus said that the audience he was speaking with will not die, that some of them will not die until you return. So that made me stop and really think. He said you had three options: either the Lord lied, we have a 2,000-year-old individual running around on the earth, or the Lord came. Of course, my Lord is not a liar, and of course we don't have no a 2,000-year-old individual walking around. So I was left with the only option of that the Lord came. Now I didn't understand. A lot. It was a lot yet for me to understand, but I understood what that passage meant. And I understood that when he said that he was coming in judgment and that he was going to come to his kingdom, that he was referring to his or his second coming. So then that's when I began to get on my journey of studying that's the topic. Well, I was sharing that same verse with someone, and they asked me, well, what does it mean to come in the glory of the Father? And I can't exactly remember what I told him, but I gave him something off the top of my head. It was nothing that I had studied or had gotten from the scriptures. It was what it meant to me. And then I began to want to know what is it, what does it mean when it says for him to come, the Lord of the Father. Well, that is what I plan to demonstrate here in this lesson to show what it meant when Jesus says, "Come, the glory of the Father." And with that being, um, stated what can happen and what cannot happen when the Lord comes in the glory is Father. Now, they, we have a Spirit in Life uh, brochures that we uh, make up and print out and send out bi-monthly. Uh, in them, we are all synopses of our study. Um, I write better than I speak. So, with that being said, I want to um, introduce the study by starting off with the synopsis that I wrote in this passage. Time after time, New Testament writers tell us that they will anticipate the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies of the coming of the Lord, i.e., the parrotsy of Christ. We should allow that fact to influence our understanding of the nature of the coming of the Lord. We can't have an accurate understanding of the coming of the Lord unless we have an understanding of the language in which the Hebrew writers wrote when defining the coming of the Lord. The Lord came in many instances in the Old Testament. We have to remember and consider the facts that the Holy Scriptures was written by Hebrews to a Hebrew audience who wrote and spoke with the Hebraic mindset in which they frequently used metaphoric hyperbolic language. If the language is taken in a literistic manner, we encounter severe contradictions. A careful study and examination of mean texts of the Old Testament referring to the coming of the Lord reveals that it is not feasible and it is actually impossible to take the language literally. In every instance in which the coming of the Lord occurred, he used one nation to judge another nation, and he never came physically or bodily or visibly in a literalistic manner. It is the same non-visible manner in which Jesus prophesied that his coming would occur. Not only did the Hebrew writers expect the Lord to come as he had come before, but Christ himself, on more than one occasion, promised to come as the Father had come. Before, Since God the Father never came in judgment physically or bodily, neither could Christ come in judgment physically or bodily. Since the coming of the Lord as the New Testament writers anticipated would be Christ's coming in his non physical kingdom, Luke 17, 20 and following, in which the judgment of the quick and dead was about to take place, First place, Peter 4, 5, then his coming could not be a physical bodily coming. Therefore, any and every claim on the yet future physical bodily coming of Christ is falsified. I will not only demonstrate that the Lord came in a spiritual manner in 87, signified by the destruction of Jerusalem, in which he used the Roman armies to destroy the whole city, but that regardless of anyone's view of the coming of the Lord, it is impossible for him to come physically, bodily, or bodily or visibly. Therefore, as I stated earlier, this... All so, I'm going to start I'm going to use my phone as my Bible, if you mind. Start off, um, has these savings we have the coming of the Lord, and then we have the of Christ, and then I want to demonstrate what it means for him to come as his Father had come. So we're going to put the two together to get the third one. There's a consistency of language throughout the Old Testament that does not change. So when the same language is used, one must prove that the definition of that language has changed, or we are forced to conclude that that language has the same meaning as before. The Lord, through his sovereignty, used one nation to judge another nation. This is the way that the Lord always came in judgment, because as we stated earlier, he never came in physically abide Now Isaiah reports multiple days of the Lord i want going to just look at a few, and then I want to move towards the Pharisee of Christ, or the coming of Christ. But I want to start off in Isaiah. We have in Isaiah chapter 13, the destruction of heaven and earth in which the needs and Persia was the Lord's device. Hold on, I know that there's two days the Lord's there, and I'll speak on them. But right now, I want to speak on this one. Isaiah 13, verse 9 to 13 <coughs> reads, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light, the sun shall be darkened in his going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. And I will punish the world for their evil, and the wicked for their iniquity, and I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease. And will lay low the haughtiness of the terror. I will make a man more precious than fine gold, even a man than the golden wedge of over. Therefore, I will shake the heavens, and the earth shall remove out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts, and in the day of his fierce anger. So, what do we have here? Verse nine, we have the day of the Lord. Ten, you have the stars not giving their light, the sun being darkened. The moon's light stops shining. Verse 11, we said that he was going to punish the world. Now, um, sorry I didn't mention this, but when we started the first verse in chapter 13, it says, the burden of Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Elias did see. So now this is a prophecy against Babylon. But yeah, here it is in verse 11. It says God will punish the world. Verse 13 says, God will shake the heavens. Now this is a prophecy once again against Babylon. It's a dead the Lord prophecy against Babylon. It's where heaven and earth is uh, shaken and is destroyed against Babylon. And it's where God will punish the world against Babylon. And then he goes even deeper in verse 17 and says, so he gives us a time statement here and says, behold, I will stir up the Medes against them, which shall not regard silver, and as for gold, they shall not delight in it. As I have just shared, the Lord always used through his sovereignty one nation to judge another nation. So here's this destruction to come upon Babylon, and it was to come at the head, and at the hands of the Medes. And this was the ultimate destruction that was to occur to Babylon, which occurred in 539 B.C., somewhere around there. Please don't quote me. But... When we go up to Isaiah 13, which I have an individual try to uh, refute this argument that I'm going to make, and I'm beginning to make here with Isaiah 13. they try to do Isaiah 13, verse 6, where it says, How ye for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. And they said, This prophecy was fulfilled for over hundred years, but yet it says that the lady of the Lord was at hand. Well, if we back up one verse, we have Isaiah 13, 5, it says, The individuals who is there, the Lord, where this destruction is going to come through, they come from a far country, from the end of the heaven, even the Lord and the weapons of his indignation, to destroy the whole land. Well, if we back up with the context, remember, the chapter and verse the station was added. Um, Hogan gave us a good time frame when that was added. but Isaiah 13 and Isaiah 10 is together. And when we read Isaiah 10, chapter 5, it says, O Assyrian, the rod of my anger and the staff in their hand is my indignation. So the weapons of his indignation was Assyria, And we know that because within 15 years of this prophecy in Isaiah 13, the Assyrian invaded Babylon. So there's your deadly lord at hand. So we have 689, the Assyrian invasion, the Isaiah 13, 6, where the dead of the Lord hand, and then you have the ultimate destruction in which the ones through verse 19 through 13 which will come at the hands of the Medes, and technically it was the Medes and the Purse, because um, uh, Jeremiah 51 tells us that they divided the kingdom. But we have the destruction at the hands of the Medes in 539 B.C. We have to understand that the sun and the stars and the moon, Not giving the light and falling destruction of heaven and earth is metaphoric, hyperbolic, Hebrew, apocalyptic language. And we know that because it's confirmed when we read Genesis chapter 37, verses 9 through 10. Genesis chapter 37, verse 9. And he dreamed, he had another dream. This is Jacob. He's uh, in the field with his brother. He gave him one dream. They didn't appreciate the dream and picked on him about it. Well, Joseph Brown, yet another dream and told it to his brother, and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream one, and behold, the sun, and the moon, and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. Verse 10. And he told it to his father, and to his brother, and to his father, I mean, and his father rebuked him, and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I, and thy mother, and thy brother, indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee, to the earth? Now pay attention to this, folks. In Genesis 379, he said, the sun and moon and stars were bound out to him. And then in thirty-seven ten, his brother, with no explanation from Joseph, no ex- I mean his dad, with no explanation from Joseph, no explanation from his brother, immediately understood what the dream meant, and this is how he repeated the dream back to Joseph. Shall I, the sun, thy mother, the moon? That's right. And thy brother, the 11 stars, bow down to you? This is this metaphoric Hebraic hyperbolic language where we cannot take it literally. It's metaphoric and it represents something else. And they understood that. As we can see, Jacob did not explain his dream. He just said what the dream consisted of. And his father immediately understood the dream. And that's the same way all through the Bible. When these Hebrew writers spoke to the Hebrew audience, they understood this language that was being used. They didn't have to have it clarified or they didn't have to have it defined because it was understood because they had used it since they were children. They had used it all the way on. It's all through their scripture. Excuse me. It's all through their scripture. So we have to understand that. When the Bible speaks of the sun, the moon, and the star falling, it's speaking of authority figures, whether in the nation or whether it's some entity is talking about, forgive me for my language, for top dogs. That's what it's talking about. The hierarchy of government. Mm-hmm. Let's look at another prophet in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 34. Brother Brent touched on it. And uh-huh. our... I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> You're fine. Brother Brent touched on it, but uh, I want to point out uh, something a little more. Because see, Brother Brent, he really touched on it to verse 8. I believe that's where he stopped at verse 8. And um, from 1 to 8, basically it's telling us that it was a day of the Lord against the nations. And within those nations, all the nations within those nations within that surrounding region, um, Edomah, or Edom, a.k.a. Esau was included in this judgment. Well, I want to start at verse 9. And the streams thereof, Isaiah 34, verse 9. And the streams thereof shall be turned into pitch, and the dust thereof into breadstone, and the land thereof shall become burning pitch. It shall not be quenched night nor day. (laughs) The smoke thereof shall go up forever, from generation to generation it shall lie waste; None shall pass through it forever and ever. This is complete desolation we're reading about here. And we have a fire that's burning forever and ever throughout generation to generation. But, catch this, the comorant and the bitterant shall possess it. The eye also and the raven shall dwell in it. And he shall stretch out upon it in the line of confusion and the stone of emptiness. Okay, so here it is. We have this land that's desolated, that's burning forever. But yet we still have comrades and brethren and ravens the things of this sort that walk the earth and fly that shall possess this land. Verse, let jump down to read verse 12. They shall call the nobles thereof to the kingdom, but none shall be there, and all our precious shall be nothing. I don't know who's going to do the call, no the one's there. But, verse 13, and thorns shall come up in her palaces, nettles and browners in the fortress thereof, and it shall be an habitation of dragons, and a court for owls. So once again, we have these, uh, only way that this can even be possible if these animals are asbestos, because we have this burning fish that goes on forever. And I don't believe that's the case. So we can't take this language literally. This is decreation language. And as I said, it's contradictory within itself if we take it literally. So we have to understand that this is metaphoric, apocalyptic language. Now, remember, the Lord always used one nation, does another nation. Well, here, we have the destruction of the nation, which includes Eden. <laughs> Well, Bible tells us that the Lord was going to use King Nebuchadnezzar as his instrument or sword to destroy the nations, which included Edom at the day of the Lord's vengeance against the nations. We can read about that in Jeremiah chapter 25, Jeremiah chapter 25, Uh, I'm just going to read the verses that I have um, pointed out here, you can go through and read it yourself anytime, but... Jeremiah chapter 25 verse nine says, Behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, saith the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land and against the inhabitants thereof and against all these nations round about, and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment and a hissing and perpetual desolation. This is forever, guys. destruction of all these nations. And he said he's going to use Nebuchadnezzar to do it. When we read in verse so he said, the Lord said King Nebuchadnezzar was the servant who was used to destroy the nation. Okay? We drop down to verse uh, 21. He said he's naming these nations. He begins naming these nations at uh, Verse 17, Then took I the cup of the Lord's hand, and made all the nations to drink unto whom the Lord has sent me, and against the name of these nations, to wit, Jerusalem, and the cities of Judah, and the kings thereof, and the princes thereof, so on and so forth. He mentions Egypt in verse 19. When we get down to verse 21, he mentions Edom. So we understand that Edom's destruction was to come at the hand of Jeremiah. The Lord included Edom with his nation to be destroyed at the hand of the king. Nebuchadnezzar. And in verse 27, the Bible tells us, metaphorically speaking, that King Nebuchadnezzar's sword will be the Lord's sword. The Lord said, Therefore that thou shalt unto them, thus saith the Lord the host of God of Israel, drink ye and be drunken, and spew and fall, and rise no more because of the sword which I will send among you. And what sword will he send among you? It was he was using King Nebuchadnezzar as his instrument, so it would have to be his sword, and he would send among these nations so that they would fall by the sword and be destroyed. Now, okay, and this is just something I want to share, because it goes along with my presentation, but why was the Lord going to judge Edom? Uh, Obadiah. When we fast forward to Obadiah, he gives us the reason for this judgment on Edom. We're well, going to start at verse 10. Oh, die one, verse 10. It was for that violence against Jacob. For thy violence against thy brother Jacob, shame shall come thee, and thou shalt be cut off forever. In the day that thou stoodest on the other side, in the day that the strangers carried away captive, his forces and foreigners entered into his gates, and cast lots upon Jerusalem, even thou was asked one of them. But thou shouldst not have looked on the day of thy brother in the day that he became a stranger, neither shouldest thou have rejected over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction, neither shouldest thou have spoken proudly in the day of the distress. Now, we've been reading about the, day of the Lord in Isaiah 34. You can uh, guess you know, you can read about it in Ezekiel 25, you can read about it in Ezekiel 35, we read about it in Jeremiah 25. And then, now we're reading about it here in Obadiah, but when we drop down to verse 15, pay attention. Now it said, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen, as thou hast done. It shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. This points out to what Colby was speaking about um, that first day of the lecture. This near. These time stages. The Lord whenever he said near. It goes back to Isaiah 13 when he said something was at hand. The Lord never um, meant for something to be near or at right hand to take 2,000 plus years. So when it's near or it's at hand, that means it's an impending judgment and it was going to happen soon within a generation. So here it is, verse 15. The day of the Lord against Edom and the nation is now near. Verse 18, let us know that Edom shall be utterly destroyed. Now, what's that the word? Malachi. Malachi chapter 1. Malachi chapter 1. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet ye say, wherein in has thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord, yet I love Jacob. Catch this, folks. Verse 3. And I hated Esau, Edom, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. We read this already, guys. Mm -hmm. But what we're reading now is fulfillment. It's past tense. He said that he hated and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness wilderness. Well, when we go back to Isaiah thirty-four, thirteen, that's like the Abel, And thorn and thorns shall come up in her palaces, nettles and brambles in the fortresses thereof. And it shall be an habitation of dragons and a court for owls. So here it is. We have the prophecy with uh, Edom being fulfilled. The dead war of the Old Testament on Edom occurred before 400 B.C., because Malachi wrote before 400 B.C., and during the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, because he was the instrument who God used, who was dead by 561 B.C. So when Obadiah wrote, it was at least after 586 B.C., because he made reference to the destruction of Jerusalem in which Edom had witnessed. So the day of the Lord on Edom occurred within 25 years And not 2,000 plus years of God saying that it was at hand. Since the day of the Lord had occurred, that means all the graphic, apocalyptic, and hyperbolic language that we read about in Isaiah 34 occurred. And once again, it obviously wasn't physical in its nature. All right. This is the day of the Lord that the... First of this is the day of the Lord on Judah and Jerusalem, the destruction that I was just uh, referred to that occurred at the hands of the Babylonian invasion in 5 Jeremiah chapter 4 is really bad. So I'm demonstrating that this language is nothing new. They're very familiar with this language, but I'm also demonstrating that when God came in judgment, this is judgment language. When he came in his judgment, that he used one nation to judge another nation. So you shouldn't expect to see God coming physically or violently physically because this is the way he came. I'm not just telling you that he never came that way. I'm showing you also the way that he had come. Jeremiah chapter 4. We're going to start at the fifth verse. It says, Declare ye unto Judah and publish in Jerusalem and say, Blow ye your trumpet in the land. Cry, gather together, they say, assemble yourselves, and let us go into the defense cities. Set up the standard towards Zion. Retire, stay not, for I will bring evil from the north, and a great destruction. The lion is come up from his thicket, and the destroyer of the Gentiles is on his way. He is gone forth from his place to make thy land desolate, and thy city shall be laid waste without an inhabitant. So? Verse 5, we have the trumpet blown and the gathering. Verse 7, we have the cities laid to waste and the land vessel. When we drop down the time says to verse 13 of Jeremiah 4, behold, he shall come up as clouds and in his chariot shall be as a whirlwind. His horses are swifter than the eagles. Woe unto us, for we are spoiled. We have the coming in the clouds. Drop down. Verse 23 of Jeremiah 4. I beheld the earth, and lo, it was without form and void, and the heavens, and they had no light. I beheld the mountains, and lo, they trembled, and all the hills moved lightly. I beheld, and lo, there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens were fled. I beheld, and lo, the fruitful place was a wilderness, and all the cities thereof were broken down at the presence of the Lord and by his fierce anger. So between 23 26, you had the destruction of heaven and earth at his presence. Well, the New Testament writers, the apostles, they were aware of this. This is the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. They were aware of this language. They were aware of this destruction on Jerusalem, on the temple. So when you get to Matthew chapter 24, and we have the same exact language, there's no way they would have thought of anything else before they thought about 586 BC. This is the first thing that their mind is going to go to when the Lord is using the same language. He's speaking about judgment on Jerusalem and He's speaking about the stretching of the temple. Why would their mind go anywhere else? Their mind would go here. They will understand exactly what the Lord meant. We have the sun being darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of heaven shall be shaped, the destruction of heaven. Sun and man coming in the clouds, and coming in the clouds, great sound of the trumpet and a gathering. All those same elements that we found in Jeremiah 4 with the previous destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. So you have the same exact thing here. Now for expecting the Lord to come as he had come before. When we read in Isaiah chapter 64 starting with the first verse it says Oh, that thou wouldst bring the heavens that thou wouldst come down that the mountains might fall down at thy presence and when the melting fire burneth, the fire causes the waters to boil, to make thy name known to thy adversaries, that the nations may tremble at thy presence. Watch this. When thou didst terrible things, which we look not for, thou camest down. The mountains flow down at thy presence. So you got in verse 1, the for the Lord to come down for his deliverance, and in verse 3, He's asking for him to come down. He said, when thou didst terrible things, and thou came down. So they were expecting for the Lord to come down in the same manner that he came down before, which was not physically, visibly or bodily. They're asking him to come down as the way he came down before. And regardless of what event they're referring to, previous to this event, he had never came physically, visibly or bodily. And they're asking for him to come down for his deliverance. When we drop down to verse 10, it says, Thy holy cities are our wilderness. Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem is a desolation. Our home and our beautiful house, where our fathers praise him, is burned up with fire. And all our present things are laid to waste. Will God refrain thyself for these things, O Lord? Will God hold our peace and afflict us very sore? So when they're begging the Lord to come down for this deliverance, they're expecting for the Lord to come in the way that he had come. The way that he had saved them before, the way that he had delivered them before, which once again was never visibly or bodily, then the Lord gives them an answer in the very next chapter. And we're um, going on this a lot, but I'm still going to stay here. But in Isaiah 65, the Lord says in verse 6, Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silence. So he gives them an answer. I will not keep silent, but will recompense, even recompense, into their bosom. So, here it is, the Lord is talking to them, and he's telling them that he's going to do it. And he's going to, he says recompense, so he's going to repay. He's going to give vengeance to those who are causing this harm on Jerusalem. But, there's a price to pay. And when we get to Isaiah, chapter 65, verse 15... He says, for behold, the Lord will come with, no, that's 66, Isaiah 65, he says, and ye shall leave your name for a curse unto my toes, for the Lord God shall slay thee and call his servants by another name, that he who lessen himself in the earth shall, Bless himself in God of truth, and he that swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten, and because they are here for my eyes. For behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered, nor come to mind. It's a time statement now. Here it is. They're asking for him to come down for his deliverance. And they ask asking him, will you refrain yourself from, or are you not going to help him? And the Lord said that he will not keep silence, that he will repay or give recompense unto them. And it's going to come with a cost. They have to be destroyed. But when they're destroyed, he's going to create the new heavens and the new earth. So we're going to have the judgment and salvation coming at the same time. But he tells us that all of this was to occur when he, his coming was to occur when the new heaven and the new earth was. Established for behold, I created new heavens and new earth. So we have to understand that is the time for them. So we understand that Isaiah 64, in which he asked the Lord to come down, the way that He had came down before, will be fulfilled when the new heavens and the new earth is, there. because that's how He was going to fix the problem or the way He was going to deliver them. Okay. Israel asked the Lord to come down and come forth. Israel asked the Lord to answer in prayer and deliver them. The Lord gives Israel an answer. The Lord Pastor delivery at the time of new heavens and new earth. Well, it wasn't just the Old Testament writers that anticipate him coming in the same way. Why? Peter says, 2 Peter 3.1, I'm going to read black. stir up your pure mind by the way of remembrance, the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, looking for the coming of the day of God for a new heavens and new earth. And we know, um, especially according to Brent's lesson, and some of what um, Brother uh, Roy showed, sure, but we knew that he got his understanding of new heavens and new earth from Isaiah 65. So we understand that in order for 2 Peter 3-1 to be fulfilled, Isaiah 65 would have to be fulfilled. And we understand that when Isaiah 65 was fulfilled, that um, Isaiah 64 would be fulfilled. So Peter expecting the same new heavens and verse of Isaiah 65, means that he was expecting for the Lord to come as he had come before, just like Isaiah was. And then we have Paul as well. He said, God, said it is the righteous act of God to recompense tribulation, tribulation to them that trouble you. That's uh, 65, uh, 11, 65 11. He said, we repent trouble to them that trouble you. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. And the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. In flaming fire, take revenge. Well, that's Isaiah 66, 15. And we know that that's one uh, whole way that uh, Brother Roy said, Isaiah 60, well, 59 to 60, 66 was exactly the exact same message. And I agree with that. Regardless, we know that 66 six is the new heavens and the new earth. So it goes with 65. which means it goes six to 64. So even Paul, when he expected the Lord to come and fire taking vengeance, playing fire taking revenge, he expected him to come the same way that Isaiah expected him to come in Isaiah chapter 64. So we have John and Revelation, in which he said that the new heavens and the new earth were passed away. And the new heaven, the new earth, or the new Jerusalem is here. So with that being said, even John, who got this from Isaiah 65, expected for the Lord to come. Now this is fulfilling, but before it was fulfilled, he had to have an expectation. Him himself as well, expected this new heaven, the new earth to come, had to give him Isaiah 65, which means he expected the same way that Isaiah expected Isaiah 64 for him to come. That he had came down the now, let's talk about the currency of Christ. Deuteronomy chapter 18, 22, tells us how to identify a false prophet. Deuteronomy 18, 22, When the prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing follow not, nor come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord hath not spoken, but the prophet has spoken it for reason, that thou shall not be afraid of him. So, in short, God said, that the prophet, preach the prophecy. And the prophecy isn't fulfilled the way that, uh, the prophet said that the prophecy should be fulfilled at the time that the prophet said it should be fulfilled, he he's a false prophet. Well, Jesus puts this challenge on himself in John chapter 10. John chapter 10, we have Jesus himself putting this challenge on him. He said, if I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though you believe not me, believe the works that you may know, and believe that the Father is in me, and I in him. So, we have a Christ saying, not to believe him for his word, but believe him for his works. Um, uh, uh, A preacher likes to call this the child of Christ. I think that's a good name for it. It But we understand that Christ says that. If he doesn't do what he says he's going to do, then don't believe him as the say. Well, John chapter 5, 19, God gave Christ the work of judgment. Christ could only judge in the same manner he saw the father judge in the past. In that same chapter, when we go back to chapter 5, verse 19, it reads, Then as Jesus said unto him, Very, very I say unto you. The son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the son likewise. For the father loveth the son and showeth him all things that himself doeth, and he will show him greater works to me that he may marvel. For as the father raiseth up the dead, and quickeneth even so the son quickeneth whom he will. For the father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the son. That all men should honor the son, even as they honor the father. He that honoreth not the son, honoreth not the father, which hath sent him. So here it is. Christ is saying that God gave him the work of judgment. He said, I Committed all judgment unto me. That for hereafter, the father judges no man. But he says that he can do nothing within himself, but what he sees the father do. So what so are the things? His father do it, these also the son do the fight likewise. So, in later terms, he can't do anything that he ever saw his father do. It's that plain and simple. He can only do what he saw the Lord do. And right now he's speaking about the works of judgment. The father had come to judgment. He said the father isn't judging anymore. I'm judging now. And when I judge, I will judge in the way that my father judged. Because I cannot judge. He says, I cannot do nothing of himself. So to say that he can come in a different way of the Father is to call Jesus a lie. Flat period. Well, Jesus makes a prophecy or a promise in the verse that I began with, which is Matthew chapter 16, verse 27 28. Christ promised to fulfill the work of judgment, which was to occur and appear in the first century or in the lifetime of the audience he was speaking to. For the Son of Man will come, and the glory of his Father will be angry, and shall reward every man according to his work. Verily I say unto you, there are some standing here which shall not die, taste of death, until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The Lord made his promise. There's no way that we, can sit here and say that the Lord was trying to speak on two subjects, because I've had that objection many times, verse 2nd, grade 27 and 28, and when we read the 2nd Timothy, chapter 4, verse 1, it says, I charge thee, this is I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead and his appearing and his kingdom. So Paul includes these constituent elements together. The judgment, the resurrection, the covenant, and the king. So since the judgment is in 27, then the coming of the kingdom is 28. They can't be separated. There's no way they can be separated. They have to be together. So with that being said, Christ said long only come the way that his Father had come in the past. And as I've demonstrated, the way that his Father had come in the past was using one nation to destroy another nation or to judge another nation. The Father never came, physically bodily, or visibly. So that means Christ cannot come i like to point out the fact that Christ said he can do nothing within himself, that he can only do what his father did. So, if Christ was to come physically, visibly, bodily, that would make Christ alive. And Christ is not alive. So, any individual who wants to say that Christ promised to come physically, visibly, bodily, or they're looking for a coming of him being physically, visibly, body. is not only... Um, discrediting our Savior, calling him alive, but they are expecting for something that the Scripture will not support. Alright, i a couple more minutes. I want to say this. Luke 17, 2021. 20, the kingdom doesn't come without observation. That's what Christ said. The kingdom doesn't come in operation. Well, in Matthew 2531 31, we have the kingdom coming with his parasite. They say he will come and sit on his throne. You want to have a throne, you know, you have to have a kingdom somewhere. A throne just doesn't sit anywhere. A throne sits in this kingdom somewhere. So the kingdom comes with the parasita. So the kingdom doesn't come with observation. And the kingdom comes with the With the parasita. Therefore, the parasita doesn't come with observation either. Same temple to Once again, not visible, bodily, or uh, physical. He said, he's coming as the Father had come. Um, the Father came with all his sanctuary. to him in Deuteronomy 32. Was that visible? No. He came with the clouds in Jeremiah 4, 13, Isaiah 19, Psalm 18. Was that visible? No. He came out of heaven in Psalm 18, Isaiah 31, Michael 1. Was that visible? No. He came in flaming flame fire, or the prophesied to come flame of fire in Isaiah 66, which would not be visible because it would be as he had come before to destroy heaven and earth. Isaiah 13. Was that visible? No. With the trumpet in Jeremiah 4, was that visible? No. With the angels? Psalm 68 speaks of about of him coming in the past with the angels. Was that visible? No, 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 no. no. In all of the ways that the Lord wants to come, the Father had come previously. And he never came physically, physically more powerful. So there's no way that Christ can come that way. Or once again, Christ is alive. Amen. Then we have where Matthew 16, Matthew 24, and 1st Thessalonians 4. I use Matthew 24 because I believe it's the, dispensation uh, that's is pre and that says that it's not fulfilled. Then you have the historic, this say, I mean, the historic that says it is fulfilled. I may be wrong, but that's my understanding. First Thessalonians 4, I know that is future future's text in and out. You know, some, you have to put humans being in a rapture or whatever the case may be. But these are, these texts, all are same text. And they are supposed to have a physical coming, a visible bodily coming. Matthew 16, right came set, and said, doesn't allow for Matthew 24 or First Thessalonians to be a visible bodily coming. Because we have the same distitional elements. In each verse. And I'm lining up there on the screen. You can see it really clearly. You can go back and check it. The trumpets and the angels, you got the river. And Revelation tells us, I believe it's Revelation 8 12, maybe wrong, but Revelation tells us that angels are going to blow the trumpet. So trumpet, you got trumpets, you the angels. Then you have judgment and resurrection. If you have judgment, you have resurrection because they happen simultaneously and they're individual. So here it is. You have all those individuals, you have all those uh, verses happening be fulfilled at the same time. Well, things equal to the same thing are right? Matthew 16, 21 through 27. The prior verses, the five prior verses to 27. speaks about persecution at Jerusalem, or that the Lord and his followers will receive. That is what Matthew 16 speaks about. I and mean, that's when the Lord says, but, and I'm, not, I'm putting this here, but the Lord is saying, I'm going to be persecuted and killed. you, you follow me, you'll be persecuted and killed. But the Son of Man is going to come and war every man according to his works. That is the context of Matthew 16. It's about the persecution of Christ. Um, Matthew 16, 21, 27. It's about the persecution of Christ and his followers and how he will vindicate them when he came to the floor. Um, that's Matthew 23, verse 34 30, 36. And by the way, when Jesus said in 28, some of you standing here and not taste of death, we're speaking to their first generation. When Matthew 23, 36, he said these generation shall not pass. Right, so we understand that this vindication was to occur. So once again, now we have the time vindicated in which Matthew 16 will be fulfilled. It will be fulfilled. It will not only come when we come to his kingdom, but the kingdom will come when the martyrs is vindicated, which will occur at the destruction of Jerusalem. And you read about that in Luke 21, 20 22, he said when Jerusalem, from the armies, that those were the events, which all things written may be fulfilled by some or little, but all things. Verse thirty-one, which uh, Hope brought up, it was the only time that God passed the kingdom with an event. And here it is, you have the kingdom once again with vengeance. You have the judgment coming with vengeance. There's no way around it. It's all through Scripture. You can't separate it. So once again, Matthew 16, whether it was fulfilled at Pentecost or at the transfiguration, it had to be fulfilled at the destruction of Jerusalem. There's no way around it. And it had to be a spiritual coming because if not, once again, our Lord is alive. The Lord came in 87, in the same manner as the witnesses of Father coming before him, just as he promised. And this is just something up there, just a future objection off the top. I'm not going to go into all of that. But for you futurists, you know, my name is Marty watson I'm on Facebook, I'm on YouTube. If you have any objections, I probably got your objection up here on the page and it's refuted. There's nowhere around it. The Lord promised to come as his father had. His father never came physically, physically, or alive. And not just that, I took all his comments. One that found some way to allow for them to be um, safety, and they all had to be killed by the time that the destruction of the region come. Thank you for your time. God bless you.